wonderful. One of the greatest songs of modern hymnody right there. It's great. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We talked two weeks ago about the crucifixion. Last Sunday we talked about the resurrection. And today we finished the triumvirate. We talk about the ascension. In the crucifixion, Jesus paid for the sins of the world. In the resurrection, he proved that what he did counted. Now in the ascension, he's going to tell us what to do with what he did and what he proved. So Ruthie will read our text for us and then voice of prayer for the sermon. Now when they met together, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Ruth, you'd like to pray for us, please? I forgot in the first service to. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> oh, dear Lord, thank you so much for your presence here today and for each and every person that has come. Help us to lay aside our sorrows, our burdens, our anxiety, our tiredness, and to focus solely on you. I pray for John, for him to sense an absolute um, anointing from you. Amen. Uh, Lord, be with his words. Amen. May they be pleasing to you and bring glory to you. We just love you, Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior. Amen. Amen. Have Ruth, you pray for me. We've prayed for each other for 47 years. This morning as I was getting ready, I told her, I said, I'm just extremely nervous today. I still get nervous before I preach. The next thing I knew, I felt a hand on my shoulder and somebody praying for me. That's the way it ought to be, amen? We ought to be praying for one another. So the crucifixion, he died for the sins of the world. Resurrection, he proved that he had done it. And the ascension, he said, now you go tell everybody about this. And he told us the geographical divisions. He said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most part of the world. Let me translate that for you to Osage Beach. For you this morning, that means you're to be his witnesses in Osage Beach, Missouri, the United States, and the world. That's the modern equivalent of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost. Osage Beach, your state, your country, and your world. This is the marching orders for all believers. To go means that we've got to leave our ruts to find pre-Christians. We have to quit moving only in our daily routines. Now, what I'm getting ready to say is ultimately profound. Only the really brilliant ones among you will get it. Jesus said, lost sheep are scattered. Therefore, to find them, we have to scatter. Lean over the person next to you and say, that's the smartest thing I heard all week. <laughs> they're, if they're scattered, then to find them, we have to scatter. The great preacher, Frederick Sampson, when he was young, he spent a summer on his uncle's farm. And the first morning, his uncle woke him up at 4 a.m. starting to work around the barn. He cleaned the saws, fed horses, carried water. He finished four hours later, was exhausted, and started climbing back up the ladder to his bed in the hayloft. His uncle saw him and said, 
where are you going? He said, to bed. Why? Because I finished my work. Frederick never forgot what happened next. He said his uncle leaned over, put his finger right in his face, and he said, now, son, I'm going to tell you something I don't want you ever to forget. What you do in the barn is chores. What you do in the field is work. Now, churches excel in chores. We do well inside our spiritual barns. We know how to take care of ourselves. I used to walk into a staff meeting on Monday morning, and I had 26 ministers looking right into my face who were paid to make sure that the people of God were taken care of. The babies, the children, the youth, middle school, high school, college, old people, young people, married people, single people, they were looking right straight at me. You don't have to worry about chores. We're going to take care of each other because we'll clamor for that. The question is, who in your church is assigned to speak for the lost? We will do our chores. You don't have to worry about that. I mean, they're important. But we will do our chores. But they are just chores. The real work is what is done out there among unbelievers. What we do in here is really selfish. What we do out there is unselfish. We must learn regularly and systematically how to go out among lost people in our local communities first and try to win them out there. To sit idly by and wait for lost people to come to us is a strange way to go. That's an odd way to seek lost sheep who are scattered. Few hunters sit in their kitchen and wait for a duck to fly through. Fishermen don't sit on the back porch and hope a fish will swim by. Farmers don't stand at the fence row and summon the crop to come in. My dad, after World War II, a Marine, came back home, took one look at my mother, and the rest is history. He was a cotton farmer, so he went out and he picked in one week 2,290 pounds of cotton. It's humanly impossible, by the way, but he did it. Just in the Marines, he's in top physical shape. He'd picked cotton his whole life. But those two together, they picked 2,290 pounds of cotton in one week, 514 in one day, so that he could buy my mother a 14, a 21-jewel bull of a watch for $90.56. She wore it till she died. Now, my dad, to pick all that cotton, he did not stand in the barn and say, Here, cotton. Come this way, cotton. Here, cotton, here's my sack. He didn't even put a sign on the side of the barn that said, All Cotton Welcome. The only way he could get that cotton, he had to go out among the stalks. And that's what Jesus is saying to you here today. Yes, we have chores to do, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you, yourself, finding a way to be regularly out there. Now, you have this Love the Lakes coming up. It's perfect. It's perfect for what Christ commanded you to do if you are doing it in order to find out what you ought to be doing forevermore. If you're just doing it as a one-time event, you're doing it just to check it off, you're missing the point. Jesus was saying that our, the dynamic of our life should be such that we are always out there. There's something we're doing regularly out there. For my wife, it was ministering to the ladies in the nightclub. For me, it was an atheist friend who hated God. There ought to be somebody out there, something, some group, a pregnancy care center, a homeless shelter. There's something out there 
that you should be doing. Not a chore, but a work. And not only is that true of Osage Beach, that's true of your state. You have St. Louis and Kansas City, two of the most lost cities in America, right here in our state. Then the United States of America, there are things that you can do. There are groups you can work with. Internationally, my wife had a Compassion International child for 13 years. There are things you can do. Your life should be structured in such a way to where that at any given moment, if somebody were to walk up to you and say, how are you fulfilling the Great Commission? You can immediately say, in Osage Beach, I'm doing this. In Missouri, I'm doing this. In the United States, I'm doing this. And in the uttermost part of the world, I'm doing this. If that's not true, then Acts 1.8 is a useless verse of Scripture. He, he told them, he said, here are the geographical divisions of your era, and you are responsible for every one of them. So the 12, first buck out of the chute, they learned they were to be itinerants. Uh, the road was their platform, and every person they met was their audience. To Christians, geography has to matter. So if you're going to be a really spiritual Christian, next to your Bible, in your prayer folder, wherever you keep your prayer things, you need to have a map of your local area. You should have a map of your state. You should have a map of some type of your country. And then globes. I collect globes. I love globes. They remind me of the mandate. Now let me ask you a question. If you are not regularly praying for your city, your state, your country, and your world, what on earth for heaven's sake are you praying for? If you don't care enough about lost people who are busting hell wide open, if all we're worried about is our chores and each other, what is wrong with us? And if you do not have some systematic way that forces you in an organized fashion to pray, you will always end up praying for me, my four, and no more. Always, without exception. There's no exception to that. If you don't systematically pray for the lost, it'll always reduce back to chores and me, my four, and no more. Now, this is an important passage because the word go brings us face to face with one of the very few misinterpretations of scriptures that Southern Baptists are guilty of. Southern Baptists have an amazing record of being biblically accurate. Even groups that disagree with us, they have other traditions, they have other things that they lean to. But when it comes to interpreting the Bible, now Southern Baptists have this reputation of being just about as good as it gets. We've made some errors. Our biggest error was slavery. Another one of the two or three top issues is this issue right here. One of the worst mistakes that Baptists have made is they have treated the word go, which they know is in the Great Commission, go as the same thing as go and stay. They are not the same. Very few of us. I'm one of those who has a special, specific call to go and stay. This is my profession. This is what I do. But what Jesus was saying here is all Christians are to go. Now, now do you see the difference? Now, watch this. See, if you think that go means go and stay, every time you hear the Great Commission, you, you click your brain off. Oh, that's for missionaries. That's for Lottie Moon. That's for Annie Armstrong. That's for missionaries that go all over the world. That's for the pastor. See, if you think go means go and stay, then basically all the Great Commission verses mean nothing to you. The only way 
that they become meaningful is if you quit using that little loophole as a way of going on short-term mission trips and realize that the command go means that you spend the rest of your life going on these forays, short-term mission trips, into your city, your state, your nation, and your world. Jesus' intent is very clear. He expects all believers to spend their lives going to their city, their state, the nation, and the world. Now, let me deal with another area. The Great Commission is not given to the International Mission Board nor to the North American Mission Board. The Great Commission is not given to the Missouri Baptist Convention. The Great Commission was not given to your association. The Great Commission was not given to your church, to Riverview Baptist Church. No. The Great Commission was not given to your Sunday school class. Every one of those agencies I just mentioned, they are support groups that exist to help you, individuals. You are the ones to whom the Great Commission is given. You you, I would call you by name if I knew you better. I've been your pastor long enough to do stuff like that. But if I knew you and loved you well enough, I would call you by name, some of you. I would have you stand up. And I would say, do you understand that you are to have a responsibility in your city, in your state, in your country, in your world, and that all these other organizations exist to help you do what God commands you, not them, to do? I regret that I was 30 years in my ministry before I found this out. But once I got it, once I understood, for me, going became the noble cause. It, it, it revealed a lot of adventures. There were a lot of surprises in the mission enterprise. And the biggest surprise probably was that I learned the life you've always dreamed of lies hidden in the mission you've always dreaded. The very thing that you hate to do the most, the one thing you say you would never do, you would never go out and help in the gay community. You would never go out and help the homeless. You never go out and help the poor. You never go in the nightclubs to help the ladies. Right there is your destiny. Right there. Now, I'll tell you my story. When the missions revival began in my heart, we had to call a consultant into our church because we knew so little about being on mission for God. It was embarrassing. One of the greatest churches in America, and we knew nothing about how to win the world to Jesus. So we called in a consultant, and we paid him good money. And he said, now, Pastor, if you're going to adopt an unreached people group on the other side of the world, you're going to have to go to China. I said, uh, no. I said, uh, I, I'll never go to China. Never would I cross the Pacific Ocean. I'm not going to do it. Never will I go that direction. Well, they kept asking me to go. I said, Pastor, you cannot adopt this group, which we did adopt, by the way, and had them for 20 years. That's another story, another sermon unto itself. You cannot adopt this group. They know nothing about Jesus. Nobody's ever told them about the God. You cannot adopt them if you don't go see them. Well, I made the mistake one time of saying I'll pray about it. So I'm sitting in my office with the consultant and my administrator, one of my closest friends I've ever had in my life. And the consultant says, John, we're glad you're going to China. I said, I am not going to China. I, that I, I'm not going to do that, ever. He looked over at my administrator, and I knew something was afoot. So I looked at my administrator, and I said, his name was also John. I said, John, what's going on here? 
He said, Pastor, we've paid them $3,000 for you to go to China, and we cannot get our money back. And that's how God called me into the mission field. And I knew in that moment, even at that moment, my life would be forever changed. And sure enough, on a mountain on the backside of China, God changed my life. I came home and I preached and I lived and I breathed missions and have done so for 20 years since. I submit to you that the thing you hate to do the most is where your calling is. I say it's biblical. Before the Damascus Road experience, had you walked up to Paul and said, what is the last thing you will ever do in your life? He'd say, oh, I'll never become a Christian. I'll certainly never preach. If you had talked to Peter before those unclean animals came down the vision, had you walked over to Peter and said, what's the last thing you'll ever do? He said, well, I'm not going to eat any unclean animals and I'm not going to have anything to do with Gentiles. So your greatest success lies in the thing you hate the most. Now the question is, why is that? Why is that true? That is a great question. I'm glad that you asked it. Now, I'm not a spooky person. I'm a mathematician by training. I'm extremely analytical. But if you miss the spiritual realm, you miss everything in Christianity. I believe the reason why the life that you've dreamed of is hidden in the mission you dread is because from the moment that you are born, the devil knows your personality, he knows your traits, he knows your strengths, he knows your weaknesses. He looks at these ministries around town, to the women, to the unwed mothers, to uh, gays, to, to whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever the ministry is going to, and you have them. Uh, we had 18 partnerships at Second Baptist. They're out there. And so you just have they're all around. And what he says is he knows that a person with this type of personality is going to do really good with that ministry right there. So what he does when he sees that you have, from the time you're a child, you have the very traits that you would do really well in this group, he will make sure that for all of your life you hear all the bad stuff there is to say about this ministry. He will make sure that your brain gets filled with bad information about the very thing God created you to do. So if you're going to serve God, if you're going to please God, you're going to have to look your fear right in the face or your prejudice. Whatever is the last thing that you say you would ever do, that's what you better do first. You'd better be here on that Loving the Lake Sunday, and you better pick on the list the last thing that you would ever do. You'd better find a group that you think you would never work with, for right there is where God has called you, and God will give you the great blessing. Unfortunately, many Christians, they take their cue from the world, and therefore they believe that really the ultimate purpose of life is comfort and ease. You know, we actually have Christians who believe the purpose of retirement is so that you can be comfortable and easy and take it easy. That is utter stupidity. The purpose of retirement is so you can go on mission trips at government expense. <laughs> so here we are, we're saying the real purpose of life is comfort and ease and contentment. And so we're living about six inches deep. And we wonder why in the world we don't have purpose, we don't have meaning, why don't we feel like we're hitting it on every cylinder in God's kingdom doing His work? And it's because we're living so shallowly. And instead of hearing the command to go, we have this, this voice that is in us. The Holy Spirit is always saying, go, go, go. But what do we do? We push it down, push it down, push it down, and push it down. And finally, we push it so low 
that he might have to whisper, but he never stopped calling. And you will never be satisfied in your Christian walk until you become a hero in the area of missions. Not in the building, not in your chores, until you are heroic out there. Years ago, uh, when we had our first World Missions Conference, over, over 20 years ago, the first World Missions Conference, never done it before. I just knew if it was going to be a success, I needed to have some big dogs running that thing. So I went to the number one most loved layman in our church. I mean, there was a guy everybody loved, everybody looked up to, everybody respected. And I said, I want you to be in charge of the World Missions Conference. He said, I'll pray about it. Came to the church a few days later. He said, no, I just had too much going on. He couldn't do it. He said, all right. As he left our church, he's driving down the road, and he remembered an event that happened to him when he was 10 years old. His mother took him to a woman's missionary union meeting where a foreign missionary spoke. And this 10-year-old boy was so moved that he had to run outside into the woods to cry at the foot of a tree. Fast forward to this day, he's driving away from our church. He's driving away having told us no. He said he's driving down the road, wrote and he said it's as if God said in his ear he said Milton what happened to the boy under the tree and he exploded in tears he couldn't drive he had to pull off to the side and once he composed himself he called our office and said he'd change his mind he'd take charge of the world missions conference now there are many of you in this room that tell the same story now listen to me what happened to the soft hearted person that used to live in your skin You remember that campfire that one time? You remember a revival meeting you were in? Do you remember when you ministered to somebody that was lost? Do you remember when you led somebody to Jesus? What happened to the soft-hearted person that used to live in your skin? See, I'm old enough to remember when Southern Baptists were sad rather than mad about lostness. Our denomination has been on a 30-year temper tantrum, mad at lost people for acting like lost people. We talk about who we like, who we don't like. We talk about political positions. We talk about how we're going to vote. We take stands on issues. I can remember when we didn't talk bad about lost people, when we cried out in tears. When I was a little boy, my daddy would make me and my sister go to church on Wednesday night. Uh, I made the all-star team. The all-star team in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, in Little League Baseball. He wouldn't let me play in the all-star game because it was on Wednesday night. I sat on the back row with my sister. My sister was deaf. She couldn't hear thunder. There were no interpreters back then. He made my sister sit in church and me sit beside her. Every Wednesday night, I had to go to church. I can't remember one thing that was ever said, but I'll tell you what I can remember. I remember at the end of those times, Daddy would call those people in front of me, made 15, 20, 25 of them, and they'd get down on their knees across the front of that altar, and they'd begin to pray. They'd cry, and you'd hear one of them say something like, My wife, my wife, she's not serving God. And you'd hear this, oh, this groan go all the way across. And somebody over here, Say something like, my daughter, it's my daughter, she's not serving God. Oh, I remember the pain going back and forth across that altar. What happened to us? When did it become more important what issue we vote on or who we vote for than for the person who's going to go to hell and going to burn forever? We must ask ourselves the question, how are we doing in going to our city? If I were to walk up to you, as you stood at the door, if I had every one of you go out, tell me what you're doing in the city, the state, the America, and the United States, 
What could you tell me? Everybody in this room claim we want to be like Jesus. Everybody in this room. If that's true, you're going to spend the rest of your life going on forays among lost people. I'm getting ready to run the Bible for you if you've never thought of this. The whole ministry of Jesus was spent doing short-term mission trips. Now, first of all, he, he healed his whole city. Capernaum was his hometown. And you remember that great night when they all came and he, he healed them all? Now, that was a great moment for me when I realized the Second Baptist Church was responsible for every citizen in Springfield, Missouri. That's why we made the 18 partnerships. We were determined to touch every hurt of 150,000 people in the city of Springfield, Missouri. Every hurt we were going to try to touch. That's what he taught us, first of all. So you start in your city. You have forays into other groups that are doing the ministry with people who are lost outside the church. But then, he not only healed everybody in his own city, he then would go from Capernaum on short-term mission trips all the time. Jerusalem, Syrophoenicia, Decapolis, Caesarea Philippi, short-term mission trips. So if you're going to be like Jesus, you have to spend the rest of your life ministering in your city to lostness and going on short-term mission trips. To have God's heart, you have to go. In the incarnation, God showed what we've got to do for lost people. God had only one son, one, and he had him go. He emptied himself, and he came here. He emptied himself. Do you think you might could fill a suitcase once every year or two or three? As long as people remain in darkness, we've got to carry light to them. So one more story, and we're done. Years ago, I wanted to preach at a World Missions Conference about taking water to a dry, thirsty world. Well, I had a friend who was a retired fireman, and so I just asked him one day, I said, Herschel, do you have one of those old buckets, you know, fire bucket, fire brigade buckets? He said, well, i got a friend that has one. I said, would you bring those to the World Missions Conference? I mean, one, I'd like to use as an illustration. He said, sure. First night of the World Missions Conference, I'd forgotten. I come walking down to my office, my office is here, auditorium is maybe 15 feet to my left. I walk out of the terminal, I hear this voice, Herschel, hey, pastor, pastor. I looked over, it was Herschel. Herschel, how you doing? Herschel came over and handed me this. I looked at it, and I thought, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life, a bucket with a round bottom. So I grabbed my stands I have in my office for my props. I, I put it on there. I thought, well, I want to use this. That's a really good illustration. So I tried it again. I pushed, hoping I'd get a little flat spot in the bottom. Well, I'm getting, it's getting late. I got to get in there to preach. So I thought, I'm going to try it one more time. So I put it on there one more time. Third time. And when I reached down to get it, I understood. See, I do have an earned doctor. You want to know why the bottom of a water bucket is round? Because when there's a fire going on, you don't put your water bucket down. If you see a water bucket on the ground, down, you know there's no water in it. So when you're fighting a fire, you keep that water bucket up. You keep it full. So here's what we're to do as believers. We start by pulling up the power of God through prayer. We get to God's well of anointing and prayer, and we pull it up through prayer. Then, to make sure that everybody's got what they need, we pass the buckets back and forth. That's where you give your money. 
There are some of you sitting right here. You're not able to go to Mexico next year, but you could write a check, send 10 people, and we didn't have to get to the bank to make sure it didn't bounce before you got there. You can be involved without going. I, I'm not getting paid extra for this. I'm going to tell you. I know old people. I am one. They're the poorest generation in America, and they're the richest. I'm looking at millionaires right now. And you're not able to go anymore, but you can talk to Pastor Michael. You can talk to somebody. You can write a check and send a whole team and not even miss the money. That's what you do when you pass the money back and forth. But then, after you pray and after you give, there's not enough missionaries. There's not enough pastors. There's not enough of us called to go and stay. We cannot do it all. So every once in a while, you yourself. You got to go someplace in Osage Beach. You got to go someplace in Missouri. In the United States. Internationally. You got to throw some water on some dry, thirsty soil. Almost none of you are called to go and stay. But every one of you is called to go to Osage Beach, to Missouri, to the United States, and to the uttermost part of the world. I think that's enough for today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.